amazing Kate Casey. Welcome back to another episode of Reality Life with Kate Casey. I hope that you guys have had an awesome week. So the highlight for me is that two of my daughters have been taking voice lessons and the very sweet voice teacher said that she would like for them to perform in this recital this past weekend. I thought it was a little too soon. They just started taking lessons, but she ensured me that there would be other people who were novices as well, and it would be really fun. So I get the location. I tell my husband, we're all going to go. So I take everybody in the whole family except for the baby. Well, we show up. It's at Steinway Piano Center, and the audience is filled with families that are either Chinese or European. And I come to find out my two kids are the only ones who are singing. Everyone is playing piano. And everyone is playing Mozart, Tchaikovsky, that kind of stuff. Then you look through the list of participants and you see my daughters are the only singers. And it lists their songs as Moana, something from the movie Descendants, and Genie in a Bottle by Christina Aguilera. So I want you to picture an audience comprised of people who probably barely speak English, who are tiger moms, tiger dads, who've had their children locked up in some room practicing piano for hours at a time, and then up walks my two kids. So think about the lyrics of Genie in the Bottle. I feel like I've been locked up tight for a century of lonely nights, waiting for someone to release me. You're licking your lips and blowing kisses my way, but that don't mean I'm going to give it away. Baby, baby, baby. Ooh, my body's saying let's go. Ooh, but my heart is saying no. She's nine years old. Her sister's five. Yeah. Okay. Also, most of these people were dressed up. I mean, some of the people who were playing, the kids that were playing were in tuxedos. A couple of the Chinese kids in full tuxedos. The girls, full gowns. My kids are like wearing sequin tops. My husband, he's not used to showing up for stuff like this because we don't, we haven't really had any musical kids and he didn't grow up playing music. So he just comes from tennis and he's got a hoodie on. And I look down and I notice my son has a little bit of holes in his shorts. So we're leaving and there's this very sweet Chinese woman who's wearing a Chanel gown at two o'clock in the afternoon with Louboutin heels and is carrying the most expensive Louis Vuitton purse. And she looks at me and says, your daughters are very, very cute. And it was quite a moment for me. And we left with, you know, all the kids screaming at each other. So yeah, it was a highlight. So this week's episode, I have to say it's really one of my favorites. Matt Higgins joins Shark Tank this season as a guest judge. Matt is the co-founder and CEO of RSE Ventures and vice chairman of the Miami Dolphins. He's one of my sister's best friends and is a great guy. And I was so excited that he got this opportunity to be a guest judge this season. He has an unbelievable story, came from abject poverty, is so successful today. And I know that you're going to love to hear his stories, especially since he was press secretary for New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani during 9-11. I asked actress Deanna Chang, who's so funny, to review the 90-day fiancé tell-all, which was a sight to be seen. And then the Talking Queens podcast co-host Julius, Patrick, and Arturo review the Netflix series Dancing Queen, which is about Justin Johnson. He made a name for himself as drag artist Alyssa Edwards, rising to fame on RuPaul's Drag Race. And this is a series about how he is a dance instructor 
at his own studio in Mesquite, Texas for little girls, um, a couple boys. So basically, it's like Dance Moms and RuPaul's Drag Race if they got married. So we have all of those guests. And in addition to that, this week, I attended the 90 Day Fiance Cocktail Mixer in Santa, on Santa Monica Boulevard. And I brought Hillary Shepard along with me. And I wanted to give you kind of some information on what I saw at the party and the conversations that I had with some of the cast members, which I know that you will highly, highly enjoy. So here we go. Okay, I'm obsessed with Audible because it lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one app. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And with female writers and heroines, celebrity narration, multicast productions, Audible has you covered for every type of excitement that you're looking for, including true crime and mystery. And I know all of you love that too. For example, right now, I'm listening to None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash reality life or text reality life to 500 500. That's audible.com slash reality life or text reality life to 500 500. My guest is Matt Higgins. He's co-founder and CEO of RSE Ventures, vice chairman of the Miami Dolphins. And most importantly, a guest shark on this season of Shark Tank, season 10. Matt is a friend of mine, but most importantly, he is one of my sister's best friends. So I am very happy to have him as a guest this week. Welcome, Matt. All right. Thank you for having me. First of all, isn't my sister a pain in the ass? You know, she can be. She can be, but she's still a good egg, and uh, she keeps it real. Matt is one of the most interesting people you will ever meet because he is incredibly successful today, but has come from virtually nothing. So to hear his story is so inspiring. So let's start from the beginning. Matt. Well, thank you. I mean, why do we have to stop that intro? (laughs) Just getting warmed up. So Matt grew, up, okay, Matt grew up in the Bayside neighborhood of Queens. He's one of th- four boys. Uh, and after growing up in abject poverty and taking care of his ailing mother, he decided to drop out of high school at the age of 16, obtained his equivalency diploma, and enrolled at Queens College, where he took night classes and graduated with a political science degree. Tell me about your decision to drop out of school. Well, um, when I was a kid, like any kid, you're always trying to hide your poverty. Um, I'm dating myself, but I would wear, you know, Jordache jeans and guest jeans, do anything I could to keep my life a secret. But probably my entire childhood, I don't think I ever brought a single friend over to the house because mm-hmm. on the other side of that door, my mother was struggling. We literally had nothing. And she was battling a race against time. Uh, post getting divorced, she went and got um, a GD and she got a college degree at night and then a master's degree in urban studies. She was really doing everything she could to better herself. But at the same time, she was slowly losing a battle um, to her health. And as a kid, you grow up and you figure, first of all, I hate this. <laughs> like no, 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 no kid wants to grow up poor and under those circumstances. And I was figuring out how do I get out of this as quickly as possible? And watching my mother, I had an idea which is she went and got her GED as an adult and as a result of her circumstances. What if I did it on purpose? What if I dropped out of high school when I was 16 and did well enough so I could start college when I was 16 and get a job? And so when I was probably in eighth grade, I made the decision, I'm going to deliberately get left back 
sit around here for a couple of years. And when the time comes, I'm going to drop out. It's easier said than done. And uh, when the moment came, it was hard to execute, but, but I did. Around the time I was 16, I went in to see my science teacher at the time. And when you're dropping out, uh, you actually have to return all your textbooks class by class, which is very undignified. And I remember walking up to Mr. Rosenthal at the time, if you're out there, I still remember this, and walked up to return my science textbook. And he said to me, Higgins, what a waste. And I'll see you at McDonald's. Wow. And I remember turning to him with total hubris saying, well, if you see me at McDonald's, it's because I own it. And I turned out and I was like, oh, man. And then I walked out, sat on the steps, smoked a cigarette and thought, you know what? He might be right. <laughs> I was like, this is among the craziest things anybody could do with their, with their lives. But I picked myself up and I executed the plan. I went and took my high school equivalency diploma two weeks later. I took my SATs, actually, to put myself in a better position. And within three months, I enrolled in college. And the, uh, the best part about the story is I became president of the debate team the um, first year of college, and I went back to my prom <laughs> at the end of my first year of college with a 3.5 GPA. So the story taught me a lot about life, which is, first of all, nobody knows what you're really going through. Um, we all hide our struggles, unfortunately. And I hope we live in a world one day where we don't have to do that as much, but reality is we do. So a lot of times the advice that you give, you get from people works for them, doesn't work for you. When I told people my plan, they thought I was crazy. You're going to throw away your whole life. You're never going to overcome the stigma of having gotten a GED. But what they didn't see on the other side of that door is that I was sleeping on the floor on a mattress that was you know, half eaten up over the years by a little puppy dog I had. And that my mother was in so much pain that you know, I couldn't sleep half the time because she was struggling. Um, nobody knew. And what I also learned is if you have a plan and a plan that works for you and you have conviction, so much of life is just executing the plan, but few people take the time to have one. So I almost feel like everything I ever needed to learn about life and how to survive, I learned on the steps of Cardo's high school when I smoked a cigarette that day and said, which direction am I going to go in? Um, but it worked out. I'm on Shark Tank. So you began your career working as a cub reporter at the Queens Tribune while attending Fordham Law School at night. And then you wrote a column on helping people solve their problems with government, which caught the notice of the Giuliani administration. So at age 26, you took a position for Mayor Rudolph Giuliani as the youngest press secretary in New York City history. You were 26 years old. And what people would find fascinating about that is that your first day, the first day you worked on that job was September 11th. Tell me about that day. To put life in context, from the time I dropped out to, to 10 years later, I was 26. Um, just things got more and more difficult at home. My mother eventually ended up uh, wheelchair bound, couldn't leave the house. So I was doing everything I could to make as much money as fast as possible because I knew this wasn't going to end well. And we would, we would go to the ER. You know, when you're poor, you don't have health insurance. So the uh, ER ends up being your, your primary physician. And I remember sitting on the steps of the emergency room in, in uh, Long Island, uh, reading my contract textbook while my mother was sitting. It was always fruitless, too. Nothing would ever happen. And I would always wonder, why are we going? But that was the context. And I was moving very, very quick uh, to kind of increase my salary. So I actually left Giuliani's office twice um, because I needed to get that salary up. And I would leave, get another job, and they'd offer me to come back a few months later at a higher salary. This is how desperate and how quickly I was trying to move. And in April of 
2001, I get a phone call from the mayor uh, offering me to become press secretary, which at the time seemed insane because not only was I taking care of my mother, I was doing law school at night. And I was overwhelmed by it, but I can never say no to a great opportunity. And I took the job. And on April 1st, the night before, my mother was in really bad shape. She had an oxygen tank, was really struggling, uh, but we had no money left in the bank. And she would say, can you stay home? I don't feel good. And I just said, like, if I don't go to work, we literally have nothing. I have to go to work that day. And I went to work, and I would never sleep for days on end. At that time, I went to work with my suit and tie. Nobody really knows what I'm dealing with. And I got a phone call from her at about 11 o'clock in the morning. And she said, uh, you know, the paramedics are here, and I'm going to go to the hospital. And part of me was relieved. Like, well, maybe if we called an ambulance, you know, somebody will intervene and somebody will help. And uh, I said, well, let's go. You know, I'll be, I'll be there. And I had to leave the office. Got there a couple hours later. And uh, when I walked in, she had just died. So oh, my gosh. For me, for me, it was felt like finally I had gotten somewhere. And I was going to be able to really make a difference. I was making a lot of money. I thought over $100,000 a year at that point, you know, to go from a high school dropout. And I thought, finally, we're going we're gonna to get somewhere. And then um, to have her die the same day uh, was just the intersection of everything great in my life and the future and the potential. And at the same time, this enormous sense of failure that I had gotten so close. Um, so it was the best day of my life and, and, and literally the worst day of my life. So September 11th, uh, it's interesting. It was, it was the end of the administration, and people don't um, always remember this part of the story. Giuliani had a time when he was like any politician, but by the end, it was definitely a low point. Uh, people were retired, ready for change, as they always are. And he had had a pretty amazing run. I mean, there were 2,000 homicides a year in New York City when he started, and by the time he left, there were 600. So he had done a remarkable job, and I was proud of the work, but um, people were ready to move on. And it was election day in New York City, and I was going to meet the mayor at uh, the polling place where he voted. And as I was about to go through the Midtown Tunnel, uh, instantly all these cars just came to life. Um, you started seeing sirens out of nowhere, and you realized something very big had happened. I got to the tunnel, and by the time I got to um, down to City Hall, it became really clear. Although in those early moments, there was a lot of talk. Was it a Cessna, a small plane that hit the building? Like, what's going on? But I did what the mayor would always do. Anytime there was a crisis, his credo was basically get as close to whatever happened as possible to signal to everyone visually that it's okay. And I was um, standing outside uh, uh, the, uh, about two blocks away from the Twin Towers uh, be, and pretty much alone on a quarter with a couple of staff setting up the equipment. And we said, this is, this is not good. Like, we need to get out of here. And uh, we started um, running towards City Hall and within a, a couple of minutes, the, the tower collapsed. Oh my God! Um, yeah, and then it, and then it just became a blur, like nonstop, ninety days straight of working, of going back to the site. I went back to the site within a couple of hours, and I remember this image in my head that will always stick with me. We went to St. Vincent's Hospital, and there was a row of doctors and nurses in white coats, and then you know gurneys, maybe like forty of them, fifty of them more waiting for the victims to never arrive. And I remember just standing there saying, like, this is just, you know, more than we could ever, you know, comprehend. And so a lot of the time, those, those like 90 days was 
visiting with family members and organizing commemorations, I probably took uh, maybe 40 heads of state down to the site. I don't even know the number. I'd be lying. It's, like, it's such a blur, but part of what we would do is we would bring a head of state to the site so they could see the carnage for themselves and, mm. and build support for the response. I mean, the war that came after. So I, I brought the Amir of Qatar. I brought um, Vladimir Putin. Um, I brought Donald Rumsfeld. And then eventually we, we, um, we organized a visit from the President of the United States, you know, George Bush at the time. Which was, a was huge, that, that, that was the, such a huge moment in our nation's history, I believe, the, that moment that President Bush went down there and stood on the debris yeah. and wrapped his arms around the first responders the and the firefighters and said, you know, we will get past this. So, yeah, to, I remember it was amazing. I was standing, I think, well, uh, those first couple of days, he was getting criticized heavily that he hadn't had on the I don't know, there was an image of a plane circling the site. So he was really getting hit hard for not you know, having the right tone, and um, which was important that he do. I'm not criticizing him. I'm saying important for the national psyche that there'd be a sense of, of calm and reassurance. And that trip uh, on Thursday to Ground Zero was actually a turning point. And I worked overnight with the Secret Service and his team to help organize it. And I remember standing there and he went atop that pile and there was a firefighter and he put his arm around the firefighter mm-hmm. and um, uh, the crowd started chanting USA and he was talking and someone said, I can't hear you. I'm paraphrasing. And he responded, well, I can hear you. And soon the people who did this are going to hear us too. And there was such an important moment. Of, um, you know, Bush wasn't always the most articulate president, but when he was talking you know, common sense, like, I'm going to, we are going to come after you. We're going to kick your ass. <laughs> like, totally. That was an important moment. Um, it still brings me chills. And so uh, it was just uh, hard to comprehend time. I have to be honest, I still can't comprehend it. I can't quite remember everything. Cause it, was not, it was just nonstop. But um, really, for all within a six month time span of my mother dying, this, this happened. It was just a crazy period in my life. Do you think that? your childhood prepared you to deal with that. It was basically like the fog of war for those 90 days. Yeah. You know, it's actually, you said that because uh, there's another memory I have standing in the firehouse. I've never talked, I've never talked about this story, but um, standing in the firehouse about an hour after the attacks and the entire infrastructure of government is gathered here. We don't quite know what's going on in another room the man was on the phone and the police commissioner was the vice president saying, we need, we need air cover. We need, we need jets. Uh, Cause no one knows again, are we under attack? And I remember we were all standing in a circle in the other room and handing around like a uh, Blackberry at the time, little ones you'd wear on your waist so that everybody could text uh, family and loved ones. And I just felt so kind of alone in the world that I didn't text anybody. I just, I don't really have anybody to text. And so, and I remember my brother finally got me uh, like a day later and was crying on the phone. He's not the sensitive type. He's my older brother, Timmy. I'm saying, how could you not call? And I said, well, I don't know. He didn't occur to me. And I said, to answer your question, I do think when you grow up in trauma and your life is always about trauma, you are uniquely prepared to face the worst. Um, and so I, that's a great point. I, I do feel like it, throughout my life, different kinds of crisis. People always say, hey, something went wrong in my life, you're the person I'd want to call. I do feel like I was probably perhaps more suited than most to be around that and then the aftermath. Because remember, I spent two years 
down there for that is from that moment working on it. Wow. Well, so you quickly moved through the administration's ranks. Depart, you departed to help run the redevelopment of Lower Manhattan after the terrorist attacks before joining the Jets in 2004. In 2004, hired by Jets owner Woody Johnson as vice president of strategic and promoted to his current posi- your current position three years later. You had met him in passing three years earlier when you were at a Jets, the first Jets game after the attacks, and you have had tremendous success. Woody Johnson has said that you are a natural leader, you process information well, and are willing to take any information, any intel, and synthesize that in a coherent way. Do you agree with him? Oh, wow. No, I can't agree. Only you can agree with him. I have to, I have to probably leave the mirror. I can't say. <laughs> no, I like to think I do. And I, and I think, again, there's good and bad to everything, right? The, the, the downside of growing up, and anybody out there who's listening to this, who's gone through traumatic circumstances, and I'm not alone, and so I, I feel for you. Um, the light on the other end of the tunnel is that the conditioning and the training you get does help you process information faster. You process threats faster. You process information because you're always a little more hypervigilant because of what you went through. At least I think so. So I think that's where that, you know, ability, where that ability comes from. Uh, but the downside is you're always paying attention. The upside is you're always paying attention. And now you, here you are. First of all, you also overcame t- t- testicular cancer. That should also be noted, which is, I mean, just add yeah. another thing to the pile. Amazing that you've come through that. And now you're this incredibly successful entrepreneur, investor, and operator. RSE Ventures has invested in so many great things. Tell everybody just like a lit, like just give people like a short list of the things that you're involved in right now. Okay. Um, we, we operate in a couple of different spaces. So in sports and entertainment, we have the largest international soccer tournament in the world, uh, privately on that is. Uh, where we take the best European teams and we bring them on the road and organize a big tournament in the summer. So Real Madrid, Barcelona, and so forth. Uh, we like to help create sports from scratch when there's an opportunity. So we help build the drone racing league, which you can see on ESPN, these crazy drones flying at hundred miles an hour. Uh, and then we're in food. Uh, I love, I'm passionate about food, too passionate, by the way, which is well documented. But um, we have partners with David Chang, uh, Momofuku, we just did a, a deal, which I love, uh, to back a bunch of Aussies who are taking over American coffee culture uh, called Bluestone Lane. Check it out in L.A. and New York. So food, um, lifestyle, sports, technology. And what I basically do is partner with Steve Roth, one of the greatest entrepreneurs of our time and the largest developer in the United States. And I connect the dots. He owns Equinox. He owns SoulCycle. He owns uh, Related. And... Uh, we invest in founders who are special, tend to be a little bit more millennial focused, who have a concept that could be massive, except they're missing something to go the rest of the way there. And I like to think that in a humble way, we supply it. And because we build businesses from scratch and I've been an operator, we're not staring at associates in financial engineering and, and looking to you know cut jobs to make money. We're looking to build. So we roll up our sleeves and we take these founders and like to think we get them the rest of the way there. But it's a pretty amazing portfolio. I have a pretty amazing day job. Now, here you are on Shark Tank, which is great because you have watched from the beginning. I mean, you're actually a huge fan of Shark Tank. So tell me about how you were, got involved with the show. Okay, well, I am a huge fan. I've seen every episode. My favorite pitch actually was the second pitch that ever was on the show, which was the guy who was 
pitching a new Bluetooth device that would be implanted into your head. And you would plug a thing into your brain at night to charge it. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> they, they tend not to do the kind of crazier pitches, but I, I missed those. So I'm a huge fan. And I um, actually got the idea three years ago uh, from none other than Martha Stewart. Uh, we were on a panel together uh, in a food competition, judging food startups, never better. And at the end of it, she goes, you know, my dear, you're so good at this. You're a natural. You should be on Shark Tank. And I was like, note to self, should be on Shark Tank. That's actually a really good idea. I love this show. So um, that's data point number one. Data point number two is my, my son loves Shark Tank. We watch episodes together. He would come home, and I would tell him about my ideas. He's like, Daddy, but did you get a royalty? And I'm like, well, that's not reality. That's just Mr. Wonderful. Um, so he really loved it. We, we bonded over the show. And about a year ago, I met um, the producers and the wonderful people behind it. And so began probably a year-long courtship between Sony and executives at ABC and, and, um, and uh, the producers of Shark Tank and Skybogging and Clay and, of course, Paul Fredette. And what people ask me all the time is, what's the process to become a Josh Sharp? I think like, there is no Sharp. There is no process, which also was a fun part of this entire thing. Like, how does one become a Sharp? Uh, and that's what I spent the last year kind of working on. So people have a bunch, a, a couple questions about the show. So number one, how long is a typical pitch? To me, having not heard it, I'm going to guess the typical pitch ends up something like 47 minutes, you know, but uh, it could range anywhere from probably 35 minutes to an hour. I'm just making that up. But, but an entire day, uh, you sit through 10 pitches okay. uh, for about 10 hours. Wow. Give you a sense of how much time. How much due diligence do you do beforehand? Before, like, How much information do you have before a pitch? Well, that's what's so fun for me, having been a fan of the show and seen all 200 episodes. Uh, and I'm not a huge consumer of TV, so that, that says a lot. That... I was wondering how authentic is the experience. And it would almost be like a five-year-old finding out that there's no Santa Claus, like it's way too early if there's this one the case. What I love is it was so incredibly authentic. In fact, I like to think of myself as quick with math, the human calculator. I thought that it would be um, it would be easy to process valuation. Once those lights are on, it's like the gloves are the gloves are off, that everything about about the show was authentic. I didn't quite answer your question, but like to me, I found that really fascinating. So you get no information about what's happening until those doors open up. And as the newbie chef, it puts you at an entirely disadvantage because you're both you're processing the comfort of having a camera in your face, and you're sitting there by Cuban and and Mr. Wonderful. It's not like it's the case, you know, to walk in the park to be able to compete with them. Do you go into it thinking about a certain amount of money you're willing to invest? I think you have a sense from watching the show about what you'd have to spend. Um, but uh, I didn't really go into it with any amount of money per se. I just, you know, figured, um, figured, you know, you'll, you, if it's a great deal, I'll do a deal. But the advice that I got, best piece of advice I got from Mr. Wonderful and I got it from Mark Cuban as well. Don't feel the pressure to do a deal. Don't do a dumb deal just because you're on the show. Mm. Um, do, uh, do a deal that makes sense. Don't reach. So I, I tried to stick to that. Of course you want to do a deal. Like, I would have been very upsetting if I, if I didn't do a deal. So of the deals that you are involved in now or, or invested in, how involved are you in those businesses? Like, are you emailing with them? Are you hands-on with the, with the deals that you got involved in on the show? 
Oh, I mean, yeah. Well, first of all, my whole MO is on hands-on because, like I said, we're builders. So we're not, I don't send a term sheet and then walk away. I, uh, I get very, very involved. So the deals on the show, especially given the high-profile nature of it and the fact that this is fun, um, I'm involved a ton, like constantly. It's, in fact, it's like I have a new job, uh, which I didn't totally anticipate, but it's fun. I'm, I'm highly competitive. So I want, I look at it like a little bit like a competition. I want my, I want my, my newborn babies to win oh, sure. and to be successful. So, so I am definitely over indexing in the amount of work I'm putting in. I guess the more ideas, the more deals I do, the more that will change because it just becomes probably not practical. But for the time being, the early deals are getting 175% of that. Got it. What percentage of the deals uh, don't happen? In other words, there's like a technicality, like you don't have the right patent, something like that. I don't really know. That's a great question. I mean, I think as I'm new to it, I don't know and I don't have a sense of the rhythm. I think what probably happens is it's like, it's like the real world. The number one thing that derails um, an, uh, an entrepreneur looking for money is lack of transparency with themselves or with others. Entrepreneurs oftentimes feel this pressure unnecessarily to have all the answers or to make things look so rosy. And in fact, that's usually a huge derailer. It's not that you have to have the answers. You have to demonstrate you're going to have the capacity to get to the answers. And I assume what happens probably on the show, and I assume I'll experience it. Somebody comes on, they're overly exuberant. They say, yes, that's right. I'm making a profit, (laughs) you know, or I've made this amount of money in this calendar year, or in fact, they meant the last five years, uh, and the deal will fall apart. So I'm sure I'll learn that the hard way. What was the best pitch that didn't make it to the show? Oh, I don't know yet because it hasn't aired. I do. I have not seen it. Oh, you good. Have it. Oh, good. And, and yep. who who will you appear with in this first episode? I am. I'm on with Lori Grenier, with Damon, with Mark Cuban, Mark Cuban, uh, Kevin O'Leary, and me. And what is the most surprising thing that you walked away from this experience with? Uh, I know it's off brand, but people were very nurturing prior to me going on. Um, I didn't make a secret that I found the whole thing to be a big reach and slightly intimidating. Um, rather than pretend that, you know, I got this, I, I really, anything I do, I undertake, I really want to be good at it. So I put a ton of pressure on and I was honest and transparent, but everybody was very nurturing. So I was kind of surprised by that. Of course, when the cameras went on, it was like I was just left to fend, you know, myself. So these, this is real money and it's competitive. That was number one. I'd say that was probably the biggest surprise. And I, I guess the second biggest surprise was that, that you're only seeing between seven and 15 minutes of pitch. I, I sort of assumed there was so much more to it. The, the taping of the show is just an elongated version of what you see on TV. And I was surprised by that authenticity. Like, I know it's called, I guess it's reality TV, but it's just more, more like reality. Uh, and I was surprised by that. Well, I also want to make sure to know that Matt is an active philanthropist. He's a board member for Autism Speaks, where he supports the MSSNG project, a partnership with Google that aims to create the world's largest genomic database on autism. He does so much for the autism community. I'm really happy that we're buddies and I'm so excited for your success and to see you on TV is going to be, I'm going to get such a kick out of it. 
Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. And then tell everybody where they can find you on social media. Okay. Uh, so I, I have a lot of heart for Instagram. So that's probably number one, Matt Higgins, RSE. And then I use Twitter uh, under M Higgins. I'm always looking for interesting new apps, and I found a great one. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They really strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. And I know what you're thinking. It's a little bit overwhelming already to invest in the stock market, but this is great for newcomers who are looking to invest for the first time with true confidence. They've got a simple and easy design. It's really easy to use. It's just as easy as using an app like I don't know, Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. I love it because it's really easy to use. They've got really easy to understand charts and market data. And the other thing I like is that other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. So you can keep all of your profits. And you know, you can learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. So Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. So sign up at reality.robinhood.com. That's reality.robinhood.com. I know everybody right now is on a health kick, and that's why I want to tell you about Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. The Roe Body Program pairs a weekly shot with healthy lifestyle changes, so you can lose 15 to 20% of your weight in a year on average and actually keep it off. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. It could be you too. Roe Body Program members have support throughout the process. Roe's partner handles all of the insurance paperwork to help get medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to the provider on demand for any questions. And you can sign up online from the comfort of your own home. And this means no scheduling a doctor's appointment, no commute to the doctor's office, and no waiting rooms. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in one year with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.com slash KKC. Sign up today and you're going to pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash KKC. Deanna Chang is an actress that can be seen on Heathers, which is on the Paramount Network and will premiere on October 25th. I have asked her to review this week's 90 Day Fiance Tell All on TLC. She, to my great delight, loves this show. Deanna, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? So I'm a big fan of yours. And I basically kicked a wall when I found out that you like this show too. And I (laughs) wanted to ask you about the tell all. So host Sean Robinson brought together the American counterparts of TLC's ongoing exploration of the greatest love stories ever told via Skype. Let's just go through the couples. I really want to get your feedback. So Paul's moved back to the States to make some money. Karini has a new haircut and a baby in her room, one that Paul is unsure is biologically his. He's asked for a DNA test to the dismay of his Amazonian new wife. Now, Paul's mom also reports in via video conferencing. She's got nothing to say to Karini beyond Ola. It's unclear if she and her husband, who <laughs> Paul calls father, like a Von Trapp. Father was so upsetting. By so the way. weird. Like it struck me to my core. He, they need to, they're not sure if they're going to sponsor Karini, which is fine with her because she doesn't really seem interested in coming to the United States to live with her monster of a husband. She'd like to stay in a third world country. So number one, is that baby Paul's offspring? 
You know, look, here's the thing. I mean, I don't know the timeline and I wish, I love this host, Sean Robinson. Like she's so perfect. I feel like she's just, is this lovely human being trying to negotiate these people, which makes me laugh. But I feel like we could have dipped into the timeline a little bit because it seemed like she had had a miscarriage and then he left and now she's pregnant again. Like I just wanted to kind of get the lay of the land a little bit. That being said, I mean, he has put her through so much with these pregnancy tests and these like, you know, venereal disease tests. I'm like, dude, you've got to be kidding me. Like you can't, first of all, her hair looks way too cute for you to ask that question on the air. You know? I know. I know. I did. I was surprised Sean didn't really get into the timeline. I'm with you on that. I felt like there's way more information that we needed to know. And it could have been that they just edited it out. But if that's true, the editors need to be fired because that really was the most important information I needed from that segment. Very important. I mean, I, I that was important. I felt like um, the financial sponsor, I don't know. I've watched a bunch of the 90 days before the 90 days. I, I've seen a handful of it now. Um, all fantastic. Like you can kind of just jump in wherever and have a good time. But I never heard the sponsor thing before. And I'm like, I feel like do all of them need sponsors? Because none of them seem particularly financially stable. <laughs> Unless you make a certain amount of money, you have to have somebody sponsor you, which puts people in a precarious you know, situation. I'm not sure I want to be spending my extra four waffles on somebody who might either be using my loved one to get into the country or might murder them, you know? Right. Exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a tough gamble. You know, like they say, like a car is not a great investment because when you drop, drive it off the lot, you know, it, it depreciates, but like you can use a car, you know, like that's a decent, <laughs> these investments are, they're just really shaky, pretty much across the board. So when we meet Karini, she was hoarding stuffed animals, but now she has sub- <laughs> suburban mom hair. Has she let herself go? I don't think she's let herself go. I feel like we met her, you know, there's like a year or two where you, you, you go from a girl to a woman <laughs> in your physically. And I feel like we caught her from that transition where you put on like maybe 10 to 15 and your body just changes. So she started as a freshman and now she's like a rising senior in the 90 day fiance university. (laughs) I think that's what's happening. Yeah. I think we're catching her in that very specific window. Right. That makes total sense. Okay. So (laughs) then we have Angela and Michael. Now, Angela and Michael. So Angela has somehow convinced herself that Michael, a bachelor from the world's scam artist capital of the world, depleted her checking account due to an ATM error. But it was Michael's declaration that he had great respect for Angela because she is his elder that really set her over the edge. (laughs) Here's my question. What did Michael do with the money he stole from her bank account? He did not steal it. He did not they, 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 that was clarified and it wasn't dealt with, you know, she had accused him pretty fiercely, but it was a clerical error of some sort. Didn't we learn that in the reunion? You don't believe it. You think he took it somehow. No. Yeah. I think he definitely took it. I think he bought some, 
some some t-shirts i think he probably used some stuff for his car because he really seems into the care of his car but yeah it was there was no atm error yeah i think michael is truly a sweetheart he wants to come here there is no two ways about that and he's ready to make some sacrifices in terms of his choice of partner to get here but I do not think Michael is a thief. I don't. That's my point of view. I think that, like, you know, first of all, why is she giving him a pin? She's probably given a lot of dudes that pin if she's so quick to give a pin to Nigerian Michael. Like, I feel like that pin is being thrown around left and right. <laughs> do you think that it's possible that he's a Nigerian prince? He has the sensibility of a Nigerian prince. Like, Michael has an elegance to him. <laughs> And um, sort of a refinement that, like, I'm fine with that. Yeah, like, if this is really a Eddie Murphy coming to America plot, like, I am fine with that. Have you ever received an Have you ever received an email from Michael asking for money? I have not to date, (laughs) but I'm staying open. I I feel like if I went through my junk mail folder, I might have an email from him. Okay, what do you do? You think that Angela smokes Marlboro Reds in her bed? That is a no-brainer. That is a 100% true. Yes. Okay, so Rachel and John, they live on different continents because of K-1 visa issues, uh, but they're married. John's never, John may never be admitted to the country because of his violent past and doesn't seem that interested in dispelling concerns that he might go into a violent rage again. Number one, is John Lucy's real father? I'm leaning towards yes. He's a little bit too into her for being a stepdad. I, I had a stepdad and he would have been happy if I never returned home after school one day. I have a hard time believing <laughs> that someone could be that elated with taking in another one's baby, especially considering he kept part of her um, uh, Rachel's umbilical cord and was Skyping with her during labor and delivery. Something's not adding okay, up for see- me. Yeah, and I'm happy you brought that up. And I don't know that I want the information. I did not fully understand. I, there was umbilical cord humor happening and I didn't quite understand it or catch it. And I kept it moving. I was like, I don't think I want to circle back on that. Should she worry about him flipping out at any point? Do you think there's reason to believe that his violent past is not behind him? Let's get him into a situation where we can see how he handles this kind of conflict. Because mm-hmm. even just based on that little interview in the tell-all, I mean, he was losing his shit about men and how, I mean, he just was going off of it. Like this toxic masculinity was just like oozing out of him. I don't think he's okay at all. I don't think he is either. I would definitely be afraid to be in the same townhouse that he's in. How many women do yeah. you think he's boning back in that sleepy English town? So many, so Me very too. many, <laughs> so many at one time so many at different times, just many, many. Ricky and Jimena. Ricky flew to Columbia to meet two different women to maximize airtime at the request of his wife so that they could take advantage of potential business opportunities for their video company. Melissa was a college student. I use that loosely. And Jimena was, I actually don't even know what she did. Um, She was available. His daughter advised him over frozen yogurt to slow things down. Do you think it was worth it to go on TV to promote your business by pretending that you were interested in a woman who lived in another country? My initial instinct would be no, 
But I don't know what generates off of these reality shows for people. I mean, I guess I never thought much really that you could really make that much money, but I, I don't, maybe, maybe question mark. Well, the daughter was, I mean, he set his daughter up real dirty. Like there's no way that little girl was that articulate and woke and able to guide him in that way. Like she was completely fed that before the camera started rolling to give him an out for why he like ripped Jimena's poor heart out. Like I love Jimena. You know, she was done so dirty. Yeah. And his daughter was completely set up. Where do you think Melissa is today? I mean, I want to say like Melissa's probably just, you know, on her grind, on her Instagram grind. I feel like, I feel like there's girls who figure out how to not see men in real life, but get money for them from them. Like, <laughs> buying, like I feel like she has a couple of accounts that just money gets dropped into from all over the world. And God bless. Like that's, you know, that's great. I think braces, that no braces. It doesn't matter. Tariq and Hazel. So Tariq's trip to Thailand taught him quite a bit about Hazel. She's got crystal gale hair. She enjoys six hour church outings. She's got a child living somewhere with her father. Upon his return, he doubted her late period story, believing she drank special tea to terminate her pregnancy. Do you believe that she was pregnant at any point? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think it's so. hard to know. It's hard to know Hazel. She doesn't speak much. Right. You know, I mean, she doesn't say it's hard to know with with her. I am not exactly sure. So she seems dead behind the eyes. Do you think she's trying to survive? She's just like in Thailand trying to get get her son back, trying to avoid becoming a hooker. Do you think she's just trying to survive or do you think that she's the black widow? Like she's killed a couple different men oh. in the last couple of years. Oh, God, I think both of these options are so viable. I really do. I mean, I did appreciate, you know, it did, it did seem like, like, I will say with all of these couples, when they, when they are ripped apart, the emotion is there. And I'm like, oh, maybe they guess they, they are in love. You know, I always go like, they are in love, you know? Um, but when she was first getting to know Tariq, like her honesty and not being in, not being impressed with his looks and not wanting him to touch her. And I, I mean, she was making me laugh. I'm like, this girl keeps it 100. Like she doesn't <laughs> think it for one second. So then when she did kind of feel him, I was like, oh, maybe, you know, I mean, look, there, she's in a horrible situation and. Why does I, I would like to know why her son was taken away because that does seem quite unusual and I feel like that's information we we needed a little bit. I couldn't agree with you more. I I there was a moment where I thought, okay, he seems pretty level-headed and I and I think it's because he's in the military. I he, there is a side to him that's very okay. level-headed. She could be diabolical. Uh, mm-hmm. but then for a for moment sure. I thought maybe she's just doing this for her son and for that I can understand because we're all you know if you're a mom you understand that however at the end when Tariq noted that there's been a glitch in the K1 process because of a spelling error in her name I thought to myself she no one really knows who this woman is she's got about 
17 aliases because she's committed crimes. Mm. And this is not going to end well for Tariq. Not only is he dating somebody who is a mystery, I think he might end up murdered somewhere in the world at some point if he stays with her. I'm in a state of full body chills right now. I think that you're really tapping into something. And I feel like Angelina Jolie could play this, like this role in a movie in like a couple of years, you know, like this, I mean, she's too, I, you know, if everything was right, like this feels like, yeah, somebody could, somebody needs to do this story and poor Tariq, like RIP. You know, right. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about him. And I, I think that as we will discuss in that, you know, as the show concluded, that he seems to understand people to some degree. He's used to diffusing situations given his military background. Right. But his desire to be married and to perhaps procreate supersedes his ability to see a murderer in front of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, when he said that, the when when she said I love you and he was really not expecting that and it was a complete shock and surprise to him and he was like this this those words have eluded me like he just is, I think he's extremely lonely and mm-hmm. he never has you know he's at a certain age but he's never been in love he's never had someone say I love you which broke my heart because he is a really sweet guy like I think. Tariq and I, I miss him. I mean, he's not going to be with us much longer. Like, I want to check on him right now and go to Vince. Like, is he with us? Has she already taken him out? Darcy and Jesse. Jesse says that he was catfished. He actually told me that. I interviewed him and he told me the same story. He said that she sent him old pictures to kind of lure him in and that he was really surprised at the airport when he first saw her, that she was much older. But he says that mm-hmm. she, she, he catfished her and she says that he basically used her to come to America. So who do you believe, Darcy or Jesse? I, you know, find him very triggering and I think he's truly like a controlling bastard that being said I think that she's also an extremely difficult person Mm -hmm. I think that he's um an abusive person and I think that she's a just kind of like a weak damaged woman I wrote down I didn't know what it was in reference to but I jotted down uh Darcy is back on her bullshit I didn't know what that meant (laughs) But I think it was actually not dating like the same, like a different version of Jesse, younger, foreign, like the whole time. So that must have been what it was. Um, yeah, I mean, Darcy is like, she speaks in Instagram quotes, first of all. She doesn't, mm-hmm. she's not, there's nothing in, like, I feel like there's a lot of missing particles inside, you know, like she's empty. Mm-hmm. And she has all, everything for her is on the outside. And there's just not a lot there there, but I do think like the the sister fight was rushed over and I'm like, wait, the cops were called and like a twin fight isn't like something that's just that's not an answer. Right. You know, like <laughs> that's not a complete answer. No. You know? I also felt like I needed more answers on why Jesse's face was a completely different color than the rest of his body. Yeah. 
That's really tough. Jeff is from, I don't know if you, like, looks-wise, I think the first whatever, I don't know where it was, but when I first met them, it wasn't before the 90 days. It was uh, whatever part, I don't know where we met them first. But I was like, oh, he's really cute. And then on this particular season, I did not find him to be attractive on any level. And then the tan really took things. And he he was a baby hair issue for a lot of this season. Like, breakage? Like, he had baby bangs? Do you mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about? That was upsetting. And then the tan was really uh, upsetting. You know, it was... Um, He's a very light-skinned man, and he put some streaky, you know, self-tanner on his face. It didn't work out well. So at the end, Angela tried to slap Rachel because of the finger-waving incident. Tariq stood up and then sat down and poignantly noted that Angela thrives off of chaos, and it would be in his best interest to just sit down and not get involved. Then she said she would not see or speak to Michael again. And I believe she left smoking a cigarette. Should we worry about, (laughs) should we worry about Angela? (laughs) No, Angela's going to be fine. I mean, of all the, you could stick Angela in the middle of a forest and she's going to figure it out. You know, like she is a survivor. She is not breakable. Um, Angela's fine. She's absolutely, she's not, you know, Did she call Rachel trash? She sure did. She did. That Mm -hmm. was funny to me. That was enjoyable. Because, I mean, I mean. But, um, no, Angela's, she's indestructible. She'll be great. She's a tank. Do you think I could find the ATM uh, (laughs) employee and they could, I could interview them about what transpired at that bank? I would, because you seem convinced, from Michael's credibility, I'm going to stick up for him. Yes, I would like you to hunt down that ATM employee, that banker, and just like, let's find out a little more information on what happened that day. You know, I would like that. Okay. Yes, thank you. I think he deserves it. I mean, Michael's a good egg. He is not a scam artist. Tell everybody where they can find you. Oh, well, um... I'm at Deanna M. Chang, C-H-E-N-G, in social media land. Next Thursday, uh, October 25th, Heather's is airing on the Paramount Network. And um, super excited. I play Miss Fleming, the guidance counselor. And it's a very dark comedy. It's a reboot from uh, Heather's back in the 80s with Winona Ryder and... Um, Oh my God, Justin, uh, Justin Slater, Christian Slater, dear God, help me. Anyway, watch it. Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you message a licensed therapist from anywhere at any time. All you need is a computer with an internet connection or the Talkspace mobile app. That means you can improve your mental health even if you've had trouble making time for it in the past. Because you know what? Sometimes you can't always drive to the other side of town. And it's not always the greatest idea to run things by your spouse or your coworker or your best friend. You want to get something off your chest. 
whenever you need to, you can talk about everyday challenges at work or home or just chat about life. Remember that therapy isn't always about venting your innermost thoughts or digging into childhood memories, and Lord knows I have those. It's about practical everyday strategies for stress management and living a happier life. I like to think about it as like a tune-up. The Talkspace platform is over 2,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing life challenges that we all face. So to match you with a perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com reality and use the code reality to get $45 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's reality and Talkspace.com reality. With four daughters and two on a dance team, I can tell you we go through a lot of mascara in my house, but I'm crazy about L'Oreal Paris new Panorama Mascara, which catches every lash for corner to corner for maximum volume. If you're looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank, this is yours. The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. I've been using it for about two weeks now, and I feel like my eye has completely opened up and the girls are crazy about it too. They've got a tapered brush to catch every lash, one of the best mascara wands that I've ever used. And like I said, this luxe appearance of this gold package, you got to get it. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. L'Oreal Paris New Panorama Mascara. You're going to love it. Julius Arturo and Patrick are from the Talking Queen podcast, which you must listen to. Now, Julius does Bravo Bravo Liberty's hair and makeup for Watch What Happens Live and other events. Arturo does hair and makeup. And Patrick is a real estate agent and does interior design. So I have asked them to watch a, a, a series on Netflix, which I became so obsessed with called Dancing Queen. So Dancing Queen is about Justin Johnson. He's made a name for himself as drag artist Alyssa Edwards, rising to fame on RuPaul's Drag Race. But when he's not on stage performing as Alyssa, he's an accomplished choreographer and dance teacher. So it's sort of like Dance Moms and RuPaul's Drag Race. This docuseries follows Justin in his hometown of Mesquite, Texas, which i got to be honest with you, does not seem like the most cosmopolitan place at his highly competitive beyond belief dance company which is a hysterical name and so you would only expect it to be called beyond belief it is where he prepares young students for intensely competitive season on the stage he's got a lot on his plate and he's got to juggle his dance life drag life family life and love life and by family life that includes his highly dysfunctional set of siblings so first of all welcome to the show Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Having us. <laughs> so how did you guys find out about the series? So we found out the, about the series from Margaret Joseph, who's on The Real Housewives of New Jersey, who kept talking about it, insisting we watch it. Well, I'll also say, I'm actually a Drag Race fan, so <laughs> Alyssa Edwards, always and forever. I have to say, I watched the whole series, and then afterwards, I watched Logo on their their YouTube channel had a behind Alyssa Edwards, and I felt like I got to know him better through that than the series. I felt like by the end of it went in kind of an ebb and flow. At the beginning, I was sort of confused by who he is, more like yeah his backstory and then by the middle of it I really liked him and but by the end of it I kind of felt like he got lost in the shuffle and I wonder if it's because the fame was getting to his head 
I totally agree with you having, I watched him from when he was first on Drag Race and he did an all-star season. And it's like, you grew to love Alyssa Edwards, even though she was kind of the villain and the bad girl on the show. But in this, it was like, you were sort of lost in her story a little bit going through the season. So I never watched Drag Race. So I don't, I haven't experienced what you guys have experienced, but just watching the show, I feel like he should be Alyssa Edwards 24 seven. Yes, yes, serious, yes. I agree. I don't want Justin. I don't want these. No, moms. Justin is Justin is a, a low budget version of Alyssa. No, but I, I, yes, I, yes. Sorry. I, I feel like he tried to be more fall when he was behind the scenes, you know, coaching their um, their contestants, and uh, it's not working for him. Sorry. <laughs> I I agree. He reminded me of Benny Ninja, which me and Arturo happened to be very good friends with, who was on America's Next Top Model. And he would come in and teach the models how to pose in Vogue. And I felt like he was, it was a little bit of that. It gave me a little American's Next Top Model and then like a, a hospital show because I felt like every one was sick or had <laughs> something. It was a little depressing. Some the first had some, some special needs. Yeah, as you got to know everyone, it was a little depressing. Um, yeah, especially because they all had really messed up names. I, one of my pet peeves is when someone oh yeah. <laughs> really obnoxiously misspells their name. And I'm going to give you an example. Angie is spelled A-N-J-I and Jenna yes. is What's that about? J-I-N-I. I thought her name was Jaina. Like her parents called her vagina. <laughs> Except the V is not in there. <laughs> it's like, what, that, let's, who are oh we kidding? God. Your name is not Jenna. That was depressing. <laughs> no, and also, the their kids horrible. had bad names, too. One, the Angie had Kiana, K-I-A-N-N-A. And the girl was as pale as I am, with platinum blonde hair, and wore black <laughs> lipstick. She has no hope for this world. <laughs> I mean, my favorite is Ainsley, who's seven. Okay. She has 1,500 trophies. No, I, that, that was, I'm sorry. Her and her, that was my least favorite. She had way too much makeup on. It was drama over the top. No, that that was the mistake. All right, can we talk about the filter that they use? I want to know what production company shot this series. World of Wonder, didn't they? So, well, the well, is it World of Wonder? World of Wonder yeah. And World of Wonder, I think, did the early seasons of Drag Race. And so, so I never watched. For the Drag people that didn't watch Drag Race, like season one, RuPaul is lit. She's glowing like the sun. Well, that's and how this show it was. It was actually a joke. Like they spoofed it on Saturday Night Live, I believe, and they were like, "Why are you glowing like that?" <laughs> oh, that's my God. like that's like Cindy Crawford's skincare commercials. I was like, "Yeah, your skin yeah, looks oh my God, great." Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're sitting on a cloud in heaven. <laughs> well, that's what I felt like here. I mean, because this is what I do. I do all the confessionals for a lot of the shows, so I see the look. Well, actually, I create the look. So I know what goes into lighting and getting the scene to look perfect, getting like uh, Melissa Gorga's house to look, the lighting in, in her dining room to look flawless. And they would never approve something like these confess- these looks where it's so after I felt like I was watching it through a Snapchat filter. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm Why are not you a sorry? Fan of this is how you felt. It, this is what's important I'm for me to know. I'm sorry that I gave my time to watch it to be on your show. <laughs> Another thing I want to ask you about is this. By the end of the series, he talks about his friendship with Shangela. And I felt like they could have done more with that storyline. Explain to us, like, why are they such great friends and gone into the more of the backstory of how sm- isolating it is to grow up uh, as somebody who wants to be a drag queen. 
and the the connection that they had and they made it so superficial and that bothered me did that bother you it did well certainly i will say as a fan of drag race it was disappointing like on drag race they really will get into some of the girls stories and their background and i think it is interesting to people because Alyssa and shangela weren't necessarily friends in those days so to see how it evolved behind the scenes you know they all go on tour after the show and they get to spend a lot of time and they're working in clubs together so and Shangela is probably one of the more successful queens that have come out of the show. Um, she's in a star is born. Go check it out. <laughs> and it, so it's like, that would be a, a much more interesting storyline to develop and see it is isolating. It is a hard road that they they're on. So explore how that kind of bonds them and brings them together. Yeah. I, th- I felt like they, they missed something there. Okay. Another thing. Were you slightly uncomfortable did you throw your cell phone across the room like I did when they had any scene having to do with Justin's sister who looked eerily like him? Oh my God. They're like doppelgangers. <laughs> it's so bizarre. But I mean, he's got a bizarre family. That's that filter. That filter makes everyone look the same. Like oh. I, I mean, it creeped me out. All the sisters are a hot mess. Tabitha shows up to dinner at his new home. And she had red all under her nose. And she said it was from a cold, but I suspect other things. She uh-huh. was not of the right mind. Well, that's the drag version of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> that's the colorful version of blow these days. <laughs> at the Joking. We're at, moving the blush under our nose. <laughs> at the end of it, she has a show and his sister, Don, Danielle, I mean, the most screwed up spelling of that name, too. She is really excited to be there. And I thought, I can't believe that all of a sudden, all these family members, all of a sudden had a come to Jesus moment where they accept him and his drag persona. If the cameras were not there. In other words, I think that Danielle Tabitha... And the other one who looks like um, she's been on the skid, skid row for a couple weeks. I think that they oh all want to get some sort of TV deal themselves. Am I wrong? I agree with you. A hundred percent. I second that. Third it. Whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 100%. But I think that happens in reality world. Julius, you can, you've spent more time than all of us in the reality world. People kind of get thirsty within your pack whether it's your family your friends and they all try and get whatever oh, it's very thirsty of the pie they but can even get. people even family friends from the outside yeah that's a, like yeah. from my like you know from my personal experience yeah yeah they all get thirsty they all want to be included or they want part of that they think there's you know so much there's gold in these hills <laughs> now to just on a super a superficial question i did think that her look when she had the yellow wig at the end was great. But then I looked yeah. back at videos of RuPaul's drag race and I felt like she was not well put together. Am I seeing things? Am I seeing I things watched, the right way? I what? never watched drag race. Patrick could, will defer to him for that, but I did like the yellow wig. That was the only look that I did like. Me too. I felt like everything else throughout the series was so, so filtered and just, it was fake looking, but I do like the yellow. Well, I mean, that's part of her look though. She's what they would call more of a pageant girl. And so, and then that's coming from her background in Texas. And so like one of the interesting drag race stories that was a big place, big pieces, her and I want to say Coco Montrese were 
both running up for a con. They both were the first runner up for the competition of drag queen. And then they both end up on the show and they sort of rebattle through this war they had. Um, so it's like being get to the point. Is the blonde wig the same as when it's on Drag Race? Yes. Oh my god! Oh. It is the same. <laughs> wow. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Can we here. discuss Marcella's? Yeah, yeah. Marcella, Marcella. We need to talk about Marcella. Poor girl. I feel like she got the shaft yeah. with those nutbag moms. Okay, first of all, that was my that was the only episode I loved is when she clapped back at the moms when they. The uh, invaded her dance class. Well, That's true. Sides were wrong. Well, these mothers shouldn't be in the room, and I her agree. yelling at the the whole thing was just wrong. But I will say that is part of the show. I mean, I get it. But... <laughs> so you know, they're they're sitting there, and you know, you have to walk in. I mean, I get it. that most dance schools, the mothers aren't all in the back of the room with their arms crossed, scowling at the teacher. All right, but her extension. <laughs> oh, they were, yeah, they they were. Try- I felt like it, a squirrel had died, and she oh and she clipped it, it, it was, to the uh, end of her hair. It was like whoever did those extensions needs yeah. to needs to watch the show and start over. Also, the, these <laughs> oh, God, da- these these dance competitions. There was no one in the audience, and miraculously, only Beyond Belief Studio were the winners. So. It's kind of and, like this. Because that's the only one that's the only that competed. Every category, beyond belief, beyond belief, beyond belief. It reminded me of people saying to me, um, I, you know, I was captain of the volleyball team in high school, and then you find out they were homeschooled. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'd be like if we had podcast awards right here in the room, and we won everything. <laughs> right. I hate to be a stickler. I played field hockey and lacrosse, and I, God knows I don't even know how to do any dance moves. But they're not the greatest dancers. I think the first they're couple horrible. episodes showed up. I was like, they are horrible. Thank God you said that because I didn't want to seem like a creature going after these poor kids. They're terrible. Yeah, we don't want to talk about kids, but the dancing was bad. Dancing I, was I think that's why they were always in solo competitions because they were not, let's say this, they were not Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation dancers, if you will. They were on Rhythm Nation. No, they, the one category they lost, they did a group dance in white where they pulled off their socks. <laughs> and around them. I don't know what that was. That was the worst dance. And they were dressed like liturgical dancers at a Presbyterian church. Uh- <laughs> yes, and the one guy came out with twitching and shaking. Oh God! I, listen, yeah. that poor kid is not going to college to pursue a dance dream that will never happen. <laughs> None of them are. Either is uh, what's uh, what's the one that really wants to dance? Uh, Willow. 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 Also, I, I feel bad. I don't think Willow's that not good. Oh my God! Am I going to hell? We'll all be there. Okay, good. Let's have drinks in hell. Okay, good. <laughs> It'll be a party. <laughs> so what do we say to everybody? Are we recommending this show? No. No. Yeah. I'm afraid to say the same. No. I hope I didn't blow it's my seven chance. seven hours you won't get back. I hope I didn't blow my chance to interview for someone for RuPaul's Drag Race, but I don't, I, I don't think I got from it what I wanted. Now, Alyssa seems like she has a sense of humor and a good hearty thick skin. She'll come and talk to you. Yeah, Alyssa got to so. set the record straight. If you're out there listening, you, you have to do Kate's podcast. People then come on Talking Queens. Queens and let oh, us great. know. She can get cute. She gets drop dead gorgeous. Tell everybody where they can track you down. 
They could find us on Instagram at Talking Queens. They could find us on Facebook at The Talking Queens. My personal Instagram, Julius Michael One. My Instagram, EP Hankin, H A N K I N. Mine is Ortiz Ari. Or they can listen to the podcast, Talking Queens, on iTunes and Google Play. Wait, one last question, Julius. Were you responsible yeah. for the vi- the confessional videos in Dallas? So, no, I was not responsible for those. Okay, because I wanted to know who decided that Cameron should wear co- uh, condom earrings. Oh, my God, I can't even <laughs> tell you. The talk of those earrings behind the scenes with all the girls, including Cameron, it was it, that was a huge mistake. Big but mistake. Everyone's yeah. very aware of those earrings, and that goes back to production not picking that up because I have to say Siren who does New Jersey and um, now I forget who does New York. The name just flew out of my head. They are very meticulous with exact detail and what looks good, what doesn't look good. I'm surprised those condom earrings made it on air. That was bizarre. But you know what? If I were doing a confessional video, I'd be wearing Lululemon yoga pants and I'd have a side ponytail. So it's neither here nor there. Well, that's what they all wear. You see glam from the top, but you don't see what they have on on the bottom. Oh, they're good. in like sweatpants and slippers. Yeah, it's not it's not that glam from the waist down. There is a there is a god in heaven. Then okay, good. So this week, Hillary and I drove down to L.A. to a ninety day fiance mixer. It was basically a night of dreams. Hillary, would you agree? Oh my god, I was more excited than when I went to the Oscars. I'm still on a high from it. It was incredible. What a night. So we get there, and the first thing we notice is they've got a photo photo booth set up with props. And I noticed that the new cast for the forthcoming season and the old cast were really leaning into their fame. It was wild to see them right there amongst us after watching this show for so many seasons. And they are—it was tr- like Madame Tussauds. It was like being in a wax museum come to life. And they it tr- really was. They truly looked the same in person. Now, Darcy, I did expect to be way more accessorized, and she was pretty pared down. Her hair she had, was a different she color. She had less makeup on. She had less makeup on than Jesse had in the reunion. She really did. She did. I did ask her about that that tan issue, and she said that while they were dating, she had to tell him all the time to tone down his face makeup. That he would wear that out in person. I did also ask her why wearing a banana clip was not a deal breaker for her, and she, she really think, didn't have a clear answer. She didn't really she didn't. have a clear answer. I I, but I get the sense that she tends to like the kind of guy that would wear a leather studded bracelet on on the you know on the daily so i don't know yeah and they they kind of had matching clothes on all the time so i think actually she was a little taken aback that the banana clip would be a deal breaker that didn't really occur to her before i don't think now and also you had this premonition that she and i were going to be like best friends that she was going to be obsessed with me so i had so much expectations you know, coming into meeting her. And usually I pick my friends, you know, by height because I'm 5'10 and I like to share clothes and she was so tiny, but I was going to make an exception for her because I really liked her. She was very sweet and she did turn out to be what she is on Instagram, which is somebody who lives life according to inspirational quotes. So there were lots of platitudes. There was a lot of self-help. I assume that she does a lot of podcasting at night, like Tony Robbins tapes you know, we're going to get it yes, girl, moving short... forward, embrace the sunshine, right. lots of that kind of stuff. And she had very, like, very succinct two word answers, you know, 
For sure, for sure. And, you know, she just she just had very clipped answers. She, the thing that I really noticed about everybody was they are exactly how they are on TV, which is so different when you meet celebrities. So there, nobody disappointed. She really was exactly how she is. And she did spend a lot of time explaining her background to us. And um, that she got married in St. Patrick's Cathedral with a red carpet and paparazzi to her first husband. So I think she, you know, was to the manner born. She was used to being famous. But she never was clear about who that husband was. She said he was Hungarian. And again, that there were there was a red carpet and paparazzi at her first wedding. Yep. At her first wedding. So she was used to this. And she also wanted to, she mentioned the show that she was on before the pilot and just assumed that we had seen it before. Exactly. I loved how she just slipped that in, knowing that we'd seen her pilot, her obscure pilot, which of course we both had because we're crazy. But she just assumed we knew her oeuvre, you know, her oeuvre of work. And we did. We did. We knew it. And she she recommended that anybody who wanted to get to know more about her and her twin watch the pilot. She doesn't seem to have an exit plan. We asked her about her clothing line or what she was going to do afterwards with House of Eleven. She said it's all shut down. She said she purposely shut it down during filming because she didn't want anyone to see it while she was filming, which we thought was the complete opposite of a business plan. And um, so we were pretty taken aback by that. But um, I think maybe she could maybe watch some episodes of Shark Tank and rethink that. I agree. So as this was going on, my conversation with Darcy, David and Andy were <laughs> Andy were standing by. Oh, I was so sorry because I lost focus. So David and Annie were behind you and I was so hungry. And all I could see was a platter of sliders and David's hand just going back and forth into the sliders. And I'm like, I'm never going to get the sliders. David is so nice. He was wearing a suit. She was wearing a full pageant gown, sequin gown. And they were so happy to meet everybody. Very kind, very complimentary. But it, I, very it's, sweet. it surprised me how deep we went in really, really quick. I asked him if they were ever going to have a baby. And he said that he got a vasectomy in 2000, that it would cost $6,800 to reverse the vasectomy. And he was hoping that there was perhaps a chance of a GoFundMe. I said, why don't you just get a um, sweet you, yeah. free deal? You know, if you're going to use the show for fame, yeah, get a reverse right. vasectomy for free. You could be the face of vasectomies on vasectomy.com. I mean, why not? Then I turned it. Annie and, and said, also- will it be a deal breaker for you if you don't have children? And she I don't think she actually understood what I was talking about. I don't think she. No, she did. Because um, at one point um, she told me that she was a singer since she was three. And that's why David loved her. And she kept screaming out, zombie, zombie. And I, I thought there was a zombie apocalypse. I, I wasn't sure. And she said, no, that's the song that he wants. That's her go to karaoke song. But she doesn't know what it means. And when I tried to explain to her what it meant, she said that, yes, I have few friends in Kentucky. And then she screamed out, Kentucky, very many times. So I think you're right. I'm not sure if she, there was a, it was very loud in there, but there might've been a little bit of a language barrier too. She was also absolutely wasted. Wasted. So wasted. She, I had one of those 90 day fiance cocktails and um, I think she had several. They were good. David David also said he still talks to Chris all the time because they're best friends. Made a point to say they're best friends. And oh yeah, they're my best friend. He hates Nikki. He still hates her. Yeah, and you asked why? What was Nikki's beef with him? And he said that she he knew too much about her and that she was jealous because she really wanted to be on the show. Which you know I get, but usually you should keep your enemies close. You know I don't think you should go against him if he knows that much about her that was my thought after that we talked to danielle who is lovely but is Uh, not living on this planet she seemed to be 
most excited that she was recognized five times in the day and a half that she had been in LA. She still, she had the most, yeah, she was the most excited about her fame. She was the most, she was very sweet, but she was not forthcoming with information. She was playing by the rules. You asked her certain things. She's like, you have to talk to the publicist. She was very into her fame and she was kind of like the Julia Roberts of the night. I thought she still has Mohammed's name, even though they haven't, she hasn't seen him for a year. And she was very driving an Uber in Texas, by the way. Oh, she said that. And she said she was very, she was very angry. I would say, I'm going to say bothered slash angry that she didn't, wasn't able to give us any information on if she's going to be on any spinoffs. In fact, they all were, if you ask them. Yeah, they all were. Yeah, they all were waiting. I think they thought they were there that night for a big, for a big reveal. Like this is our spinoff. And none of them got that. I think they were all dressed up in their finest. There was free food. There was press there. They were waiting for that, you know, big announcement, and it did not come. It was a probably a disappointing night for them, although not for us. And in fact, at some moments, I thought they were actually almost angry at me because I would say, "Yes, will will we see you on a spinoff?" <laughs> well, I don't know, Kate. W- w- you know, will I'm, we? Will we? We're just kind of waiting. Like, yeah. listen, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe they thought you had more pull than you do. Yes. I, oh, Molly looked great. She lost a lot of weight. She was there alone, yeah, but, she did. but looked a little bit lost. She had a waist. The she new- was also wandering around. Not a lot of yeah. people talking to her. She she had a waist. I, she looked really good. She lost a lot of weight. She looked a lot younger. She did look a lot younger. Oh, and then don't forget about Paul, your boyfriend, Paul. Okay. Well, first, uh, I do have to mention that the new cast was there and they were very into their fame. So uh, oh, they were the queen. They were the they were the queens. Every they got the biggest when they were introduced. Everybody yelled the loudest for them. They were the new stars for sure. Yeah, it, it actually unnerved me a little bit. But the big hit of the night was Paul. <laughs> now Paul was wearing the cool uh, cooling wow. vest that he wears in the Amazon. Amazon. They were without the um, the pack the packs hidden inside the vest. But there was also hand sanitizer clipped to the he, side. I think he's getting money for that. Didn't you? He was very excited to display his cooling vest. He had kind of a, a thing he told us. It was almost like he was reading it off exactly about the cooling vest. He had clipped on his water bottle and his hand gel sanitizer was clipped on as well. And he was very serious when he told us about his vest. Now, I did an Instagram story where I asked him, Paul, tell me the timeline of this miscarriage and pregnancy. Is this baby yours? And he said emphatically, yes, yes, it's my baby. Now, you have to know that the minute I put my phone down, he told us a different story. Oh, yeah. Then then he said, well, it's probably my baby. And we were like, probably. And then he said, well, Karini had three miscarriages, you know, already. And one was definitely not my baby. That's when Kate and I, our hair, our hair started to stand up on end. <laughs> and he told us the story. And I said, well, how did you know it wasn't your baby? And he seemed to notice me for the first time. And he said, well, one night Karini stayed out all night. And um, when uh, she was pregnant, I asked her for a DNA test. She ran up the stairs and drank some profanol. I always say it wrong. I, I heard him to say that. It was very loud in there. That's what I thought he said. And then she had a miscarriage soon after. So he said he was sure that wasn't his baby because she, you know, drank something and was uh, didn't want to take the DNA test. So um, he also said that he was going to raise it anyway, like John with, you know, 
with uh, Rachel Bear with baby Lucy. So he said he was going to raise it anyway, but he sort of dropped that bomb on us. What did you think of that? Well, I was creeped out because the first thing he said was <laughs> it was during her fertile period instead of saying like an ovulation period. And by the way, what man knows when the other person's ovulating? But he said it was her fertile period. She went out all night. Oh. And then when I confronted her about it, she went upstairs and you heard him say she drank propofol, which is what Michael Jackson yeah, died from. It was disturbing. I, I, if I misheard it, I misheard it, but I, that's what I heard. And I was so taken aback. I, I should have asked for clarification. I also want to note that I did bring a bag of hair to give him. And then I he had such a strange vibe that I actually didn't want to give him my bag of hair because I didn't want him to have my hair. So. He, now, he also Bye. said the problem in their relationship is that Karini really suffers from insecurity problems. She always thought she was an ugly person. So that now that she's on television, she's getting so many uh, direct messages saying, I love your hair. I love your skin. I love your style. I love how you hoard stuffed animals. You are awesome. And that it's gotten to her and that she tends to write back and forth with people that she shouldn't because she loves the attention. He was very sweet too, but that's when they showed the clip of the new season and we were separated. Um, And then by then we felt like it was time to head back home. Thank you for going with me. I appreciate it. I can't wait to rope you into the next event. Tell everybody where they can find oh, you. Oh, I can't wait. Hi, I am Hillary Shepard. And uh, you can catch me on my Instagram is Hillary Shepard. And um, at The Real Diva Talks is my Twitter. And um, Kate, thank you so much for taking me. It was a highlight of my life. I'm putting it there <laughs> with going to the Super Bowl, going with the Oscars. Um getting a great review in the New York Times for a movie I did. It's up there. It's like, it's up there. The amazing Kate Casey. I want to thank my great guest this week, my buddy Matt Higgins from Shark Tank, actress Deanna Chang, Talking Queens podcast co-host Julius Patrick and Arturo, and my buddy Hilary Shepard. Remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes and to leave a five-star review. And to go to the Facebook page for the podcast, click in Reality Life with Kate Casey in the Facebook search button. You are going to love it. Over 10,000 members. It's growing. It's so much fun. My Facebook page also, my other Facebook page is Love and Knuckles. You can find me on Twitter at, at Kate Casey. You can find me on Instagram at, at Kate Casey CA. I'm wishing you guys all a great week. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.